Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Steve Carter and was recorded on Sunday, November 20th, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Steve. Well, good morning, FaithBridge. How y'all doing? I mean, since I was here last, you won a World Series. Let's go. And this one, there was no cheating. I mean, you did it. You did it. It's just like, it's like that fourth grade kid, you know, who, who got an A, but his mom knew he cheated. But then he went out and he studied. And when he got into sixth grade, he decided not to cheat and he got an A on a test. That's what you all did. Well done. I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. Hey, if you need a Bible, you could raise your hand. We'd love to give you a Bible. We're walking through this entire book of Luke. I love the gospel of Luke. It is unbelievable. It is, I know we shouldn't have favorites in the gospels, but it is my favorite because it is written from like this doctor, historian. He writes the book of Acts. And so you just see this profound connection. Now, what I want you to understand is most of the gospels, Matthew and Luke were kind of written, scholars would say, based off the Gospel of Mark. And then John, John was just doing his own thing. But you have a similarity, but when you begin to read through the synoptic Gospels, that's if you saw a story and then we're able to look at like the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, there's sometimes, there's different nuances that just come out. And so today, that's what I want to do. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to dive into a story that many of us know. But if you're a parent and you have a kid who came home recently, maybe third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you got kids in the Klein school system, one of the best in all of the country. And, and, and yet, here's the thing if you're like me and your kid got to second grade, you could help them with math. But then all of a sudden, third grade, something changed. My daughter's like, hey, dad, can you help me? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this one in the bag. Yeah, this is what you do. It's called long division. She's like, that's not what my teacher taught me. I'm like, well, she's wrong. <laughs> this is long division. And they're like, this is not what, dad, I went and showed my teacher your work. And she said um, to tell your dad that we're doing new math. And I'm like, oh, new math, huh? What's new math? And I'm realizing oh, I don't know how to do this new math. And I'm like having to learn. And by the time my uh, daughter got to, fifth, uh, to, to fourth grade, which she's in now, I just looked at my son, who's a freshman, and he was Val Victorian in junior high. And I was like, bro, it's on you. I did all I could. I do not understand new math. Why do I say this? Because I could get to the same answer, but there's a whole other process with tens and zeros, and you teachers are legends. Um, I'm so sorry for parents like me, but you all are legends. But sometimes you, you, you see something and you've just been taught it one way, and then all of a sudden, it's hard to actually see that there's maybe a, a new way. And what's amazing is when we dive into this, this passage of scripture, for many of us, we have known this story but I really want us to see it with Middle Eastern, rabbinic, Jewish eyes. 
I want, you, I want you to go back with me to this context in which Jesus was this rabbi with shmiha, a level of authority. And people, people, people wanted to know what this rabbi had to say, what he thought. And so you have in Luke chapter 18 a moment. It says this, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is such a great question. This isn't the kind of question that like many of us think when we say, how do I get into heaven? But literally the idea of eternal life in the Hebrew Jewish understanding was it actually starts today. How do I walk with God in, in this age and also in the age to come. But I love this. Because Jesus just simply says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, we're going to break this down in a moment. But what I want to do is I want to take you back to the book of Mark. Because look at the way that Mark describes this. It says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you look at Matthew, Matthew will describe this person as a young ruler. And so what we see in Mark is a guy who's running up to this teacher, falls down on his knees in broad daylight and begs this question. Luke doesn't give us that kind of detail. Luke just says there's a ruler. And really, whenever this story is told, it's told about a rich, young ruler. And isn't that what we all want to be? Rich and young and ruling? And yet at this story, oftentimes it has been seen as just a story about money. And it is, but it's also about something far deeper. Far more about what is actually taking place in our heart. And I love that we see a rich, young ruler walking up to a rabbi and saying, good teacher. He asks an honest question we're going to get to in a second. But Jesus just stops him right there and just says, oh, no one is good except God. Now, in Jewish understanding, and through the second and fifth centuries, there was a book called the Talmud. And the Talmud was based on different rabbinic or rabbi interpretations of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And what you would see is Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai, they would all offer in kind of their perspective of how one would embody or live out the teachings. And this, this book from the second to the fifth centuries, if you, if you walked up to any Jewish rabbi and said, oh, what's your favorite text in the Talmud? You would look, you would be awesome. That rabbi would love you. But it, all it was was how to embody and live it out. And, and rabbis, they have this thing called midrash, which sounds terrible, like there's a, a breakout on your stomach. It's not that. Midrash is where you, where you offer up questions. Well, you know, as you, could it be? Could it be that this situation happened like this? Ooh. And you play that out, and then you'd start to teach your people, maybe this is what it means to love your neighbor. Ooh, but what if it meant to actually love your enemy? Ooh, that's what your neighbor is. Ooh, and that's how a rabbi would play that out. Well, all of that got documented in this book called the Talmud. And rabbis to this day memorize the Torah, but they also memorize the various interpretations of the Talmud. 
I say all this because there is not one example in the Talmud of a rabbi being addressed as good. None. So what this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, stop you, stop you right there, right there. Because the central idea to the, ra- the rabbinic teacher was there is nothing good but God and the law. And when I say law, I mean the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So this is amazing. So, so come back to this. Just the simple, simple question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's such an honest question. But really what the emphasis is, is in that word do. Because this rich young ruler, he has done stuff to be rich. He has done stuff to actually be at his age ruling and be in such power. And he's looking at this idea of religion as an opportunity to go, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And many religions teach this. If you just do this, if you just follow these three steps, if you just experience this, if you just orient your life around this, if you just do this, then you can receive nirvana or you can experience some kind of spiritual enlightenment or you can be seen as this. And truth be told, when it comes to Christianity, it's not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you. That is, that is really, really difficult. I had a friend who was witnessing to Jack Welch, uh, the former leader of General Electric, GE, one of the greatest, greatest leaders. And Jack once told him, my whole life I've earned everything. And you're telling me all I have to do is receive grace and admit that I need grace? That's a hard one for me to believe. And, and, and many pastors say, who lived out in Florida, that Jack got to that point towards the end of his life, but it was a hard, hard piece. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what Jesus is going to do. As we walk through this passage, Jesus is going to establish a standard of goodness and then is going to challenge what the man believed he must do to make himself good. He sets this standard. He establishes it. Hey, nobody's good but God. And then he's going to come after this young man and the way that in which he is thinking to become good. Go back to the text. We're going to read that one passage one more time. It says this, verse 19. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony or lie. And you should honor your father and mother. And look at the rich young ruler's response. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Just earnest. Got a little bit of Peter in him. Just earnest. Ah, yeah, man, I did those. Now, just just real honestly, Do you think he actually kept all the Ten Commandments since he was a child? No. There's no way. You've never coveted. You've never actually lied. You've you've honored your father. What? No. No. But again, this is about his own perception of himself. I'm good. You're good. And I'm doing everything. I'm I'm a good person, man. I'm a really, really good person. So just, 
just, just bless my goodness and tell me that I'm already on the right path to inheriting eternal life in front of all the people so that everyone can see as a rich, young ruler, I got it. I'm good. Don't we want that some days? Don't we just want the recognition? Don't we just want, like, the blessing? Don't we just want everyone to know, ooh, yeah, they're good. They're really good. I want people to see me as good. But Jesus, Jesus does something. Jesus does something so, so powerful because we all have to wrestle with this. I mean, you go to the book of Romans, and Paul writes about this. Because Paul actually, I mean, he'd look at his own lineage and be like, man, I, 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 was, I was better than good. I, I, I followed this law to a T. I came from the right tribe. I had the right training. I had the right schooling. I knew everything. And yet Paul realized I knew nothing because I didn't know Christ. And in Romans 3, verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's really, really hard in our self-help culture. Because I want to be righteous. I want to be good. I want to be better than good. I want to be better than every Ohio State Buckeye fan. Which is not hard. Uh, just, kidding, just kidding. But I, 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 want, I want to be seen in that way. We want that. We want to be better than our coworker. We want to be better than our siblings. We often want to just be seen as just a little bit more righteous, just a little bit better, just a little bit more good. And we have to get to this point where we're like, wow, there's never been anyone just righteous, not even one. You skip down a few verses in Romans chapter 3, and, and it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And, and I know you all, every time, say, why do you always wear black on stage? I wear black because Johnny Cash wore black. <laughs> it's easy. But I, but, I, but I read his biography. And he said every time he took the stage, especially when he went into sing and perform at prisons, he saw the way that people looked at him. Just he had a guitar and a deep voice and had a bus that he would travel in. People thought he was better than he was. And, and he knew his own personal depravity. And every time he looked down and he saw the black, he reminded he's no different than his audience. And I think sometimes when we get on stage, especially in a church, we can act like we're just a little bit more righteous, just a little bit more good, like we have all the answers. And every time I look down and I see, I'm realizing I'm first and foremost preaching to myself. And, and, and I, I want you to understand this because you, you have to understand Jesus is genius. He's such a good rabbi because in this moment, he could have just called that rich young ruler out. He could have told this rich young ruler he was a sinner. But you know what he does? He rather decides to let him experience the reality of the first commandment within his actual life. Because this man's like, oh, all of the commandments I've kept since I was a little boy. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, really? I am not going to just tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just going to experience it. And for some of you who aren't familiar with the first commandment, Exodus 23 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a real honest question for every one of us. Do you have another God? And you're like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean like a different religion? 
No, I'm just, I'm just something that takes up precious real estate in your head, in your heart, in your body, in your mind. Something that you run to, something that you gravitate to, something that you turn to in the midst of stress, something that you need, something that you want more than Christ. And if we're honest, every single one of us in this room has run to something else. And Jesus, to this rich, young ruler who so desperately wants to be seen as good, Jesus is about to allow him to experience the first commandment. Now, go back to chapter 18. Look what it says, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, and what he heard was, all of those I have kept since I was a boy, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Leakarai, come, follow me. I love this because it just continues. When he heard this, he became sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is this about money? Yes. But also it's about so much more. Because here's, here's what it's really about. There is a gap. There is this gap between the man's, the rich young ruler, need to be seen as righteous also what really has his heart, and lastly, what can actually make him righteous. You know what has your heart? You know what actually has your heart? You know, you know what actually is something that you turn to? Makes me think of interviews. Have you, have you ever been and sat through an interview with your company? And you know that the person that you're interviewing, whoever she or he is, is just simply trying to put on the best version of their self. And the person who is conducting the interview, the HR team, is trying to, in some way, in the nicest way possible, put on the best kind of cultural performance for what their culture is like, and at the same time, trying to find a way to break through that person that they're interviewing so that they'll be honest and human about what they're really like, not just what their resume tells and says about them. And so different people who are in the interview have different approaches. I remember one time I was interviewing at a church and one guy just said, what's the worst thing your dad ever said to you? I was like, wow, all right, we're going for it. We're going for this. I've seen interviews where people just are super nice and then it just turns. But I was talking with a mentor recently how do we actually get to the point where we can self-identify our competing gods? And he said this. Well, it's pretty easy. I'm like, what do you mean? And it's pretty easy. What's the question, Steve, you don't want me to ask you? I was like, what? What's the question you don't want me to ask you? Because if there's a question you don't want me to ask you, you're probably hiding something. And I was like, this call's done. And I hung up on him. 
mentors. Who needs those people? But do you understand this? Like, what's the question? If I walked up to you right now and you were like, please don't ask me this, please don't ask me this, please don't ask me this. There might be an idol there. That might have your heart. And if Jesus were speaking to you, he might actually want to address that. You know, he's talking to a rich, young ruler. But if he was walking in Klein or, or Spring and he saw a perfect, pretty, pristine person, he might actually say, oh, it's really, really hard for the people who are perfectionists to enter into the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's the performing workaholic prove to everyone they have what it takes. And he might say, oh, to the workaholic, it's so hard to actually experience the kingdom of God. Do you, do you see? Because Jesus is speaking to a person, an actual person, whose ran fell at his knees. And Jesus is just saying, oh my goodness. Man, I see so desperately you have this desire to be seen as good. You want everyone to think that you have what it takes, but what actually has your heart, you don't want to surrender that and experience and fully trust me. And that's, that's the gospel. And for some of us, it's around our identity. For some of us, it's around our past. For some of us, it's around our addiction. For some of us, it's just around certain sin patterns in our life. For some of us, it's around being a perfectionist or pleaser or performer or pretender or, or our relationship with power. Whatever it is, the gospel is an invitation to surrender. And that, that's, that's when we gather. It's not my kingdom be done. It's your kingdom be done on earth, in me, as it is in heaven. Again, these words sound really nice until you actually have to sit with Jesus and he looks at you and goes, oh, oh, sweet boy. Oh, 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 my sweet daughter. Oh, you who are crushing it in your job, can I just remind you who you are to my heavenly father? And that's the work. Now, now, I love it because this is all happening in a, in a room and in, in, a, in a view from a lot of people. And all of a sudden, they're watching, like, who talks to a rich young ruler like this? And then they start to murmur, which murmur is such a great word. But this is this. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? If a rich young ruler who's kept all the commandments since he was a little boy, who then can be saved. I mean, this guy is the example of like cultural goodness. And look what Jesus says. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And he just flips the scales. And then you have Peter, who's just this beautiful disciple who has all the earnestness in the world. He just wants to step up and go, Peter said to them, we have left all we had to follow you. And Jesus is like, yeah, you left a boat and you were a fisherman, bro. You didn't have money? What are you talking about? Sit down, Peter. Fisherman. My life with, your life with me is so much better than what your life would have been. But Peter just like, he's so earnest, man, I left everything to follow you. Yeah, 
And look what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home with their wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. See, what Jesus is talking about in that day and in that culture, man, you didn't leave your family. Family was everything. The land was everything. Been passed down from generation to generation. But that was such a central fact. There's many, many Jewish people that I've had the privilege to share about this rabbi who's changed everything for me, my Lord, my Savior, Christ. And many Jewish people have said, Steve, I want to follow Jesus, but if my parents found out, it would crush my mom and it would crush my dad. And it was just this moment, and I come back to these verses because I'm like, man, it's really, really difficult because there are these identity markers that sometimes just begin to take more residence, more precious real estate in our head and our mind and our heart. What is that for you? Because really, this is a story about money because he's talking about the rich young ruler, but he's speaking specifically to a person that's allowed one thing to become what defines him. What is that for you? And truth be told, this is why communion is so precious to me. Because communion is an invitation to be honest and human. Communion is a moment where we get to experience what actually Christ did for us. Communion is where we wave the white flag and we actually practice the art of surrender. Communion is where we have to look at our life and go, gosh, is there anything in my life right now that has taken up precious real estate that isn't my Lord, my Savior? Is there anything in my life that I'm trying to do to climb this ladder of faith to be seen as good? And this is where I think we get our semantics wrong when it comes to communion. I hear people say all the time, oh, 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 I get to take communion. No, 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 no. Maybe it's just semantics. Maybe it's just me. You know what you get to do? You get to receive communion. Our culture is so good at climbing and taking and using and abusing and making it about us. But the truth is, just like grace, we can't do anything to earn it. All we can do is receive it because it's not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And so you come to a table, and the table is this picture of a bread and a cup. And what's so amazing is the bread, this was the central meal at the table. Every, it's like, it's like here in Houston with chips and salsa. It's like, it's just the meal, right? And bread was there. And what's so powerful about bread, Jesus will say, go eat with your enemies. Why? Because if you broke bread and you handed it to another person and they received that bread and eat of that bread, it was symbolic that you were no longer enemies, you were bound to each other. So just the single act of eating with your enemy and you were like, would you like some bread? And they said yes, it was displaying we're no longer enemies. And here's Christ. Christ, 
A man who died a death he didn't deserve lived a life of profound humility and perfection so that we could experience the presence of God breaks himself open so that we are no longer enemies with God. That's good news. And every time we receive communion, we receive the invitation that we are bound to the kingdom of God, bound to the ways of Christ, and that we are friends of Christ and children of God. And at any moment that you want to start to doubt that, in any other moment where some other kind of version of where we find our identity in, whether it's the past or some performance or some relationship or some need or some addiction or some struggle, all you have to do is grab one massive ceramic cup. (laughs) Any cup at any table. Because Jesus picks this cup up. And what's amazing is if you know the Jewish table, when Jesus does this at the Last Supper, he picks up a cup, and that cup would have been the cup of judgment in the story of the Passover. But Jesus refrains it and says, this cup represents a new covenant, that all things can be made new, even you. And friends, whenever you grab a piece of bread, it's a reminder that you've been bound to the the kingdom of God to the presence of God. Every time you hold a cup in your hand, it is a fresh reminder all things can be made new based on his death, his blood that was shed for you. And so for me today, I'm excited because we have these tables here in this room and also in our communion service. And in a moment, I'm gonna pray, but I love just clarity because I think clarity is helpful. And the communion service Um, You're going to be able to receive communion when you feel led. It's self-led. But here in this room, with all the people that we have here, we want to create just a little bit more order. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the ushers invite you to come down front and take a moment. If it's me, usher taps my row on 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 the shoulder, I'll get up. This is what I would do. I'd walk straight down. I take this piece of bread, I dip it, probably put one hand under it, just no drippage, and I just take a moment. Sometimes I might just get on the knee on my knees. Sometimes I might just go back to my seat. Sometimes in that moment, I just might just like just stop and ask myself, what do I need to surrender so that Christ can have more residence in my mind and my heart? Is it money? Maybe. Is it my identity? Maybe. Is it performance? Maybe. Whatever that is. But use this as a moment to receive what is done for you. Use this as a moment between you and God. And I actually think, too, I was worshiping and I was thinking about this. I think that there's some of you, and I I, I think about this murmuring question, what must I do to be saved? I think there's even some of you who are in this room or who are watching online or who are in the communion service. And you're wrestling with that question. And so this is what I'm just going to do. I'm just going to go stand right over there. Right over there. There's a fire extinguisher over there in the wall. I'm going to go right there. Maybe for some of you, you just have that question. You have a question about, what, man, what, what do I got to do to be saved? And I'd love just to, to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to introduce you to the, the great staff and volunteers here at Faith Bridge. 
And then we can receive communion together. So, in the communion service, self-led, here, guided by ushers, and I'll be over there. But use this time. We're going to sing three songs. And I know, I know, I know, some of you are like, oh, three songs? Now I can bail. Don't bail. Just think about Jesus on the cross. He didn't bail. Stay here. Stay in this moment. Receive this moment. And allow a posture of surrender to guide you. God, we come before you right now. And we're going to have space. Space to not rush through a moment. Space to sit maybe with our sadness. Because, man, I've been running and chasing and finding my identity in this. But communion just centers us back to where we need to find our identity. God, I'm praying for a posture of surrender posture of repentance. And all I mean by that word is just a posture to return home to you. And God, I pray that whatever gods we have that aren't you and your spirit and your son at work in us, I pray that we'd surrender those now. And for those that maybe are just even longing for that relationship with you but don't know how, I pray that you'd even work in a little conversation. We're trusting you, believing you in this service and in the communion service and those that are online to work in ways that we could never, never even dare to imagine. We love you. We trust you. And all God's people said, amen, amen.